Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can now subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. We have a special treat for this episode. Today we present highlights from the most recent installment of an exclusive DGA special project series called The Craft of the Director with David O. Russell. Mr. Russell's noteworthy filmography spans more than 20 years, often focusing on intimate human stories about family, mental illness, and identity. Some of his critically acclaimed films include The Fighter, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, and Joy. Last month, Mr. Russell sat down with fellow director Jeremy Kagan to talk about his creative process in front of an audience at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles. Clips from Russell's films were shown as the two discussed casting, story structure, working with actors, and many other responsibilities a director takes on during each project. Our highlights begin with discussion of the opening scene of American Hustle, which features Christian Bale in character adjusting his elaborate hairpiece before participating in an FBI sting operation, which Russell intended to serve as a metaphor for the film's themes of identity and performance. Enjoy. Welcome. Um, part of these conversations, what we're interested in, is to look at all of the responsibilities and stages that a director goes through so we can learn from one who's a master, like yourself, what your process is. So let's start from story, because that's where it begins. And in your case, it becomes really special because you're a writer as well as a director. Sometimes we're dealing with directors who, you know, that's what we do. We direct, but we don't originate material. So in this case, talk about the relationship between the story and you as director before you ever cast and got on set. Well, uh, this came as uh, a true story script to me by Eric, and I knew what I wanted to do with it about the characters. And that became a process while we were ending Silver Linings Playbook. I was going to the homes of Christian Bale and Amy Adams and Bradley Cooper and uh, Jeremy Renner and talking about what their characters could be. And it sort of really was born in Christian Bale's backyard where we talked about this man as the, the bigger idea of the, an idea about a movie that where the people are not beloved, I don't want to make. I want the people to be beloved, even by their own standards. So that's who Christian was in The Fighter. You see, if he's just a, if he's just a jerk who's a drug addict and I don't love him, what do, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to make that movie. There are people who will make that movie, but I don't want to make that movie. I want to find what I love about him. So we had to truly love these guys. And we loved, that we had to find what he loved about life. And he loved Duke Ellington. And I gave him all my personal things that I, some, that I loved. Duke Ellington, he loved dancing at the Pierre Hotel, which was a corny, old-fashioned thing to do in the 70s, but it's what he did. It's what I did. Um, he loved the art of imposture, acting. He believed everything was, every day was that. That, that opening idea, which came as we were in production already, 
Because then it becomes a little bit of a horse race between all the actors because I want them all to shine. And it's my job to make sure they all shine as a writer and a director. So that's like each one's trying to, you're trying to leap higher for each one. So when Bradley came in and he was a bigger presence, I, I, I was partly thinking as a father, you know, I want Christian to feel like he's getting his due. But partly also as a filmmaker, I thought, oh my gosh, what a great opening. His hair is a metaphor for the whole movie. It's a metaphor for what identity is. It's a metaphor for what acting is. It's a metaphor for what life is. You know, you, you know, Sartre says, you know, none of us understands why we're put here, uh, but, but, but freedom is, is uh, what we do with, people, with what people have done to us. What the situation we've been put in is just what we do with that. So this, that's what he's doing. He's doing with what he was given, a bald head and whatever, a big belly, whatever else he was given, and he's turning it into this work of art that, is his, that matters to him. And we felt that was a human thing for any human. As you were looking at the director at this story, this is before, this is before you're shooting a thing, are you looking at it at, in terms of a structure that you, as a director, are seeing? I can feel like this is the way I'm going to start in Medius Race. This is how I'm going to do this. And where are you as the director-writer here you know, looking at story? Um, are you imagining scenes? Are you thinking of the entire structure of the film itself? Yeah, I think you're trying to think of what is most exciting. I am. What is the most exciting movie I would like to see? you know, that is captivating to me, that is a feat of capturing people's attention, that is unexpected. That So that's not easy to do. So it's all about what is fascinating. So it was fascinating to me that they had a bomb down the hall. This wait, what is the bomb? It's so complicated I couldn't even explain it to you. There's a mayor in there with a guy who brought, a con artist who brought the mayor, who's the mayor of a town, who found out they can get rebuild Atlantic City, and that there's a sheik who would invest in that. That is a real FBI sting operation that happened, okay? And they told the politicians, you know, they had to say they were accepting the money on tape. So that's waiting down the hall. That's like, it's good to have a ticking bomb, bomb off camera and have the, have the audience wondering, where are we going? What, what, why are these people under such stress? Um, where, are they, where are they walking into? So I think about all that, and I think about what does each character look like, and what will they be that is exciting, that I've not seen before? What, how have I not seen Christian Bale before? How have I not seen Bradley Cooper before or Amy Adams? Um, that's ex that's the whole thing to me. Is is you look at the person, and it's like looking at somebody in Port Authority. You're like, who is that person in that three-piece white suit with a top hat in the middle of the afternoon? What a weird person. Who is? I like I like wanting to know who somebody is. Do you go through the process? Um, in this case, as you just said, you knew I guess the people that you want to have play in the movie. Where are you when you're not in that place, but you're just you as the writer or you and a writer, and you don't have any cast yet? Where are you in telling a story at that moment? Or do you like even to be in that position? I find it useful to talk to actors about the story. It helps pull it out of me. It helps make me tell them the story. It's like I'm auditioning for them. you know. So to audition for them makes me... It's like holding a gun to somebody's head. I say, you know... To make a really good movie, it has to be like there's a gun to my head. And I think that's true. It's very hard to make a good movie. So you have to do it, and it's like someone holding a gun to your head saying, no, tell the story better. No, I don't think that's as good as you can tell it. Tell it better. I'm going to shoot you in the head if you don't tell it better. So that's what that was like for me, auditioning for those actors. 
because some of the roles changed that they were playing because some people were, for family reasons, stepped out, then stepped back in. And, you know, so that, you know, meant asking people to switch roles and then asking them to switch back. And so that's a lot of auditioning for the filmmaker, you know, to say, here's why the mayor, Jeremy, is truly an amazing, perfect character. I'm not sure what's about to come out of my mouth. But by the time I've left his house, the answer is, I go, that is a really good idea. Because the, and that was what the movie needed. The movie needed a soulful, genuine human who loved his family, had a simple family, not a mistress, and loved his town. Loved it and thought he was just raising money for the community in the state of New Jersey. That is who, in fact, that mayor was. And the FBI even loved him and regretted taking him down. And so I realized this, God, without this, the movie lacks heart. You know, it gives it more heart. In, there's a time when, when as a writer, you're alone working. And there's a time as a director when you're thinking about the script, you may also be alone. What do you do with that time? Because I understand what you just said in terms of sharing that with others. But there's a time as you're developing and working it. What's happening in your mind? Are you seeing a movie? Are you? Yes, no, I picture it. Yeah, I'm always trying to picture it and to feel it. Yeah. I will act it out for people. I will act it out for my studio. I will act out a trailer for them. Because very often I'm still working on the screenplay until we go into production. And I have their faith and confidence that they're financing this picture without a finished screenplay, which scares them. And their lawyers are telling them not to do it. And so... I go into their office and I go, okay, that's a fair. So in return for that, you know, I'm not precious artist. I will tell you not only what you're getting, I'm going to act out the movie for you and I'm going to act out the trailer for you. That's exciting to me. That's, you know, filmmaking is showmanship. We're all from theater. We're all from drama. We're all storytellers. And as a storyteller, you have to, whether you're telling it to your five-year-old or to audiences across America, you've got to captivate them. Structure. Do you think of structure? Of course. You think, you think, you're thinking of waves. I try to think of waves. Okay? And I would argue that, you know, joy I knew was going to be harder to make as exciting as these pictures, and it was. And I somehow talked myself into it, and I'm proud of many things in it, but it was harder to create these waves of because people know what that story is. They know what's going to happen to that lady pretty much. You know, they know she's going to invent this thing. People don't know who these people are or in Silver Linings or in the, they don't even in the fighter, they don't know who those people are or what's going to happen to them. They have no idea what's happening to them. So uh, you think of a wave, like, so a wave is like a, is almost like an instrumental several bars, meaning I've got you by the throat. I know I've got you by the throat for this wave. He go, he, he's honest, it's Christian Bale doing his hair and we were not going to cut that was done in one, and he did it in one. He learned how to do it from the hair person himself, and he's very proud of that, and he could do it himself, and, and, he, and he did it like it took two or three minutes, which I loved, but it was too long. So we had that one cut, and we, and we only did a couple cuts. We cut to the bottle and stuff, but it, it was in real time, the comb over until that we jumped ahead. I knew that was that to me was either going to work or it wasn't. It was either going to be fascinating and amazing or it wasn't. And you can hear people laughing, you know, and people just fat. I just that's that's what you want. You want people having that kind of oh my god response. Then he walks down the hall. Why is he in that room? What's who's on the monitor? Who are these people? What are they talking about? Now it's about sex. First it was about now it's about his clothes. Are they in a theater company? And me and Christian conceived of it like he was the director of a theater company. That's what he was. That was his genius of life. That the, what he constructed as cons was like a theater director, and Bradley's character wished he could be him. 
like it was a more exciting way to be than he'd ever imagined. And making, aspiring to make an FBI character who I'd not seen before. You know, kind of like the principal or the person you look up to and then you go to your house, you go to their house and you're shocked they live in curlers with their mother and their fiance in a one-room apartment with like a bald dog. And you're like, I never pictured the principal like that. You know, I never, I thought it would be like a nice house, you know. Um, so that's, I li really liked that the FBI guy who's a striver had this weird home. That, and I always like to shoot negative day one, right? Meaning? Day zero, right? So that's a stolen day. And it makes us, it, psychologically, it gives us a lot of morale. Meaning me, an actor, and a mini unit, and the UPM, we want to shoot the day before the shoot starts, right? So we have to, it has to be something simple. In Silver Linings Playbook, it was the day he runs up to the high school and he sees his principal, speaking of principals, and she tries to run away from him and he catches her at the door. That was just Bradley, me, the camera, and that lady, uh, Patsy Mack, who's an actress who plays his mother in American Hustle, Philadelphia actress. And in this one, it was just Bradley in the apartment with the fiance and Pat Patsy Mack. That was negative day one. And you just feel good. You feel like, you know, you feel loose. You don't feel the pressure of the whole crew. You feel like you're just doing something that's really cool and passionate, and on day one you're ahead of the schedule. You know, um, sound man's on part is with you as well, though, right? Because you're recording sound on on both of these cases. Oh yeah, no, yeah. sound is definitely there. Yeah. But you've got it. But you've got a little crew. It's just a small no, crew. That's right. Mini unit. Yeah. All right, let's kind of. I want to go with the wave one more time. It's in terms of. Oh, so that was a wave, right? The next wave's going to come right now when Bradley closes the briefcase and he goes. Let's, he looks at the cash and he closes it. And this was designed to do this to be like a, you know, it was a rhythm, 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 rhythm. It's all music. Listen to Duke Ellington. Any film is rhythm. You know, so that rhythm ended after they had their argument and she fixed his hair. He goes to the briefcase and he goes, click, let's go. That kicks off the next wave, which is Steely Dan, uh, dirty work and slow motion as they walk down the hallway that he just walked down, the three of them into this room and the double doors open and Amy walks in and it says American Hustle and the camera. And I shot that scene repeatedly, playing the music in my hand with a little uh, jam box. Is that what they call it? You know, and I'm playing it, no no sync sound, right? Take after take, picturing it in slow motion. Do you, in this script process, do you listen to music? Yes, I listen to music. I write it into the script. I shoot to it. Um, have the, I give the characters record players and records, you know, that their character would listen to. With that, as I'm actually knowing whether when you change your mind. Well, you change your mind in post. I mean, when you find out that song is not as good as, like the opening song to The Fighter was Jeff Lynn's, ELO's Don't Bring Me Down. Don't bring me down. You know, that, that was not such a great marching through town song. And then my editor, and then my editor brought me, cause that's the scene where they're marching through town as local heroes, right? Cause I, I created that whole beginning to show, I want to show very economically that these guys who are road paver bums were legends in this community of people buying lotto tickets. So I wanted to show them in their glory walking down the street with everybody coming up to them like they were Obama or something, you know? And that's what that opening sequence was. And that was done as one, like the opening of Three Kings was meticulously designed, and I was talking to Paris about this, as a Steadicam shot that then of course got chopped because it had to move along, you know? But that's okay. Let's talk about uh, your casting process. Um, 
if you were casting somebody to be a moderator who was a Q&A person, you were seeing a whole bunch of people come in, what would be your process? I, I, would say, I would say, get Jeremy Kagan. If I were walking in here... I wouldn't get out of bed. I'd just say, get Jeremy Kagan. After that one, if I were up for another part, what would you... What's your process? I'm not talking about stars. I want to hear about that, too. But I want to also hear just because oftentimes the people who play small parts yeah. in your picture are wonderful characters. Yeah. Some of them are the real people. Yeah. Some of them are just wonderful actors. How do you go about the process? What's, what's, what do you do with an actor who's coming in for a smaller role? I, I read with them on Skype or FaceTime. I'll read with them. I'll ask them to read numerous times. I'll see how they take direction, if they're going to take direction or not, if they can do it five ways or four ways, and if they have the rhythm that I have in my head for the character, or if they have something more exciting. So I'll do that with all the... Like Shea Wiggum is a great actor, and he played the brother in Silver Linings, and he plays the long-haired con guy here who brought the mayor into the suite in this movie, and he just loved it. He just loves it, and he loves the process. So I don't know. There's a lot of people like that. The casting people, Mary Vernu is amazing, and Lindsey Graham. The local Boston casting, bringing in a lot of people. I shot three movies there. Um, Angel what Angela Perry. What I'll tell them casting? exactly what I'm looking for. Which, give me and I'll say, I say, I don't want any beautiful people. I don't want any models or beautiful people. I want regular-looking people who have character. And I'll tell them exactly what I'm looking for. And then they bring me modeling-looking people. And then, you know, I say I said I didn't say modeling people, you know. If you're doing a FaceTime interview with Skype, Skype interview that you were just saying, and you said, I'll ask them to, I'll, I'll redirect them, what kind of language might you use? Because this is something that we're always fascinated with. Each director has a different style, but what's, what's the language that you I might say use? stop acting. No acting. There's no acting in this picture. Just say it. Just say it. Just say it. Just say it. Okay, great. Now that we, you stopped doing what you did in your hotel room because I don't want you to do what you did in your hotel room. I don't want that. Because then they because then they get stuck in what they did in their hotel room. Right? Or as De Niro calls it, that's bedroom perfect, you know? And be, and and De, and, De, and De Niro's whole point is bedroom perfect because you got to break that. You know what I'm saying? You don't want it to be bedroom because that's not alive always. That's not sometimes if you're lucky. You know, but usually that's not live in the moment. But if you're saying don't act and don't give me your bedroom performance, as you know, sometimes when you say something like that, somebody they may shut no, no. Down. I won't say that. I'll okay, just, say, I'll just say, point. just, I'll say, I'll say, work with me. I'll say, work with me. So just say the words. Just say the words. Okay, great. Okay. Well, forget what you're doing. You know, because you can tell when someone's stuck in saying a line they said a thousand times in their house. Right? I don't want to come here today. Okay, try it a different way. I don't want to come here today. No, a different way. I don't want to come here today. It's because they practice it a thousand times that way. So they're stuck saying it that way. And if they can't change it, then they're not going to get the job. Right? They have to, I'm like, whisper it. You know, you know Christian Bale told a story on, on Charlie Rose where he, a lot of people auditioned for the Spike Jones role in Three Kings. But I knew I, I wrote it from my friend Spike Jones, who had hired me as a writer on what was to be his first movie, a movie called Harold and the Purple Crayon um, in 1996. And uh, I wrote that role for him to play like kind of like a little brother to Mark Wahlberg. I knew what I wanted, but the studio Warner Brothers made me audition everybody and their brother in town. So everybody comes up to me this day from James Franco to Christian Bale and says, I auditioned for that. And Christian Bale was upset because he said, I tortured him. I said, how did I torture you? I said, I don't even remember the audition. He said, you told me to talk like a little girl. You told me to talk like Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> And I said, okay, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, let me remember this, okay? I would never do that randomly, you know? I'm not a character in a Quentin Tarantino movie who just wants to cut off your ear, you know? I, I, there was a reason for that, which is that you came in with your Batman voice, and I had pictured the guy talking like this, like Spock Jones up here. 
and you kept doing the audition like this. And I kept saying, do it in a higher voice. You go, okay, like this. That's what they do. They go, I go, no, 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 a higher voice. Okay, here it is. <laughs> That's not a higher voice. Yes, it is. So then you go, well, do it like a girl. Okay, a girl like this. No, 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 like a little girl. Okay, this is a little girl. No, like, you know, like Macaulay Culkin. Okay, I'm in Home Alone. You know, so, you know, that's why that happened. But so that's, so some people, you cannot get them to do it a different way. And then what you do is, you know, sometimes you have to say, okay, I'm gonna take, we're gonna turn around, or, gonna, or I'll do it, I'll show you how I'll do it. And then an actor, any self-respecting actor will throw their body in front of you to stop anybody else from doing it but themselves, right? And I'll do it, I'll do it, let me do it. What makes you make a decision to use a, a non-actor versus an actor? Well, it has to be right. I mean, um, my son, because I'm prejudiced, um, he's now an actor. Mickey O'Keefe, the cop in The Fighter, lived that experience as Mickey O'Keefe, the cop in The Fighter. That's who he is. He lived all that with those two brothers. And Mark Wahlberg, who was the godfather of that picture, wisely said, I would like Mickey to play Mickey. See if he can do it. So for all of pre-production, I kept testing him whenever we were hanging out. And he was a consultant because he knew how to train people with the pads. He was a real boxing trainer, so he made Mark comfortable. Mark felt safe with him with the pads. And he knew all the authenticity of their world at the granular level. So he was a great guy to have around. He was the real guy. And so that turned out to be great. We didn't know how flexible an instrument he would be, but it turned out he was just flexible enough. That's a real question because oftentimes you're with somebody that, that is in fact that person. You know it. You feel comfortable with them. Is that. Now you bring them to be that person on the set with 50 other people around them. Right. And something else happens. Right. And I remember Mark laughing at him because it's one thing to do it when you're alone. Then when there's a lot of people there, people can freeze up. You know, I would freeze up. You know, I don't like being in front of the camera because I, it's like you, everything changes. As soon as you're in front of the camera, you, it feels different. And everybody's staring at you. Everything feels different. But he did it. Let's talk about design. Design. Judy Becker is an incredible production designer. I knew her before I worked with her. I worked on a half-born movie that didn't get fully financed at my low point. You know, uh, and, but we got to know each other, and uh, she's a meticulous designer. She's designed for Todd Haynes. So Judy, Judy designs everything, and we talk about it a lot together, and we look at a lot of pictures together, and that was real wallpaper that was based on the wallpaper from 1978 in the Plaza Hotel, and it was just her variation of it. And she flocked wallpaper. I didn't even know what those words meant until I met Judy. Flocked wallpaper. That's the one that has texture to it. It's like velvet. You know, that sticks up. A pattern sticks up. So Braille people could read it. So... <laughs> You know, that's her thing. She did it in the fighter. And sort of these weird wall ornaments are her thing. Like this weird ornament of a tree that hangs on the wall. Or wall sculptures are her thing. So we had a thing we've been doing. We get very comfortable with each other. And we have a feeling that's authentic. It should feel like a real place. But it should also feel beautiful. We like when it feels lush. And we love that American Hustle felt lush. And their costumes, Michael Wilkinson, an amazing costume designer. An incredibly easy person to work with. Um, it was a wonderful guy. Let's stay with production design for a yeah, minute. Yeah, okay, production costume. design. Okay. In terms of, and this applies, you just said photographs is something that you look at. Um, what else are you, are, are you talking about overall ideas and an overall look? And this can depend on the picture because maybe flirting with disaster has a different look from the fighter. It has a different look from the kings. I'm just curious in that as you have your initial dialogues with who is ever working as a production designer, what are the first things that you're talking about? I tell them, I ask them to bring, yeah, they have to bring ideas to the meeting, right? And they have to bring a book to the meeting that has ideas if they read the script. And they should bring a lot of ideas to the meeting. And they should know all the other movies. Um, and then I'll tell them what I think the whole movie should look like. 
you know, what I think. Or if I don't have, if I don't know, I'll say I don't know, and then we'll start having a conversation about it. Um, and we'll look at pictures as references, and we'll I'll do drawings, I'll do storyboards or drawings, and of course it always becomes about money. And I like adaptability. You can adapt. I love being able to adapt like a Navy SEAL team. You know, our, we, our movies are shot on very short schedules. Those are, these are movies about characters that did $100 million. That's hard. Let's, let's talk about a camera for a bit. Um, what determines your working with a cameraman? And then what's the dialogue between you and the cameraman initially, or camera person, I should say, initially? Well, I really learned how to pick cinematographers after my first... Uh, three films, you know, I learned that I had to pick somebody who when I was in a room with them alone, like felt like we were really, really listening to each other and getting along great. You know, that's a good, simple first step, isn't it? Um, and it's good if they're an artist too, but who also is willing to take your direction. So I love, I love them to be artists who love cinema and who love, are very excited about cinema, as excited as I am about planning a shot and we'll argue for a shot but if they're if they're shut down if i say no seven out of ten times they're not that's not going to stop their enthusiasm for the picture and for pitching new ideas that's what i say to them in the first meeting i mean they help design a shot and they help you figure it out together and i storyboard it a lot of times and then and then we change it and the dp i tell them how i want the lighting to look i want it to feel natural i want to be able to turn around a lot easily and still have it be beautiful and that usually means soft sources. I mean, everybody, you know, soft sources, simple soft sources. Or as what, there's a very famous gaffer told me on my second short film, Dickie Quinlan, who had gaffed several Scorsese pictures. He was the gaffer in New York City. And it was the biggest coup of my life when I was 25 to get him, or 27 or something, to, 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 to light my short film. And he said to me, um, he kept saying, I, I don't know, after three lights, I get confused. After three lights, I get confused. Everybody's like, well, there's like a fifth light, then there's a fourth light, then there's a flag, then there's this thing. It's like, it's too complicated. You know what I'm saying? Just make it lighted simply, but beautifully. Talk about uh, working with uh, storyboards. You did say you storyboarded certain sequences, or maybe all the... All no, I, I storyboard as much as I can. I try, is this your uh, drawings? Is this I've worked with a storyboard write, uh, illustrator, and I've, and I've also done them myself. I'm not a very great drawer, but I mean, you know, I do them myself. And I've done them on computers, and I've also done them with drawers, and it helps you picture the sequence shot for shot. It's very helpful for action. Um, and how long, how early on will you get like into Six that? weeks out, three months out, like so, that. So when you know the pictures, pictures when you're in pre-production, when you're in pre-production, yeah. Got it. And and your mood in pre-production versus your mood in shooting. Do you, I mean I find that pre-production, I, I I'm far more anxious. Because there are so many unanswered questions, mm. and I find when you know when you're walking onto the set, there are lots of unanswered questions. But you know what you're after, and you know what you're doing. I'm curious whether you have a different sense of just where you are as a artist during that pre-production time versus during production. Some people love. Well, you know, you know, our job is really, you know, it's a weird job being a director. You know what I mean? I mean, everybody thinks it's a great job, and everybody wants to direct. But in another world, like in Dante's Inferno, I would say it's like a, a hell you could wish on somebody. Because it's like it's like going here. Here's your job. This is a good one. God is laughing. He's like, this is a good one. I, this guy's not going to know this is hell, but I'm, this is, he's going to want to do it. But it's hell. Okay, here's your job. You have to get other people to do things in a very specific way, and you also have to create reality. Okay, go ahead. And then you go. Well, it doesn't sound so bad. I'm going to get paid to do that. Okay. 
you know, but it's very, it's very, very difficult. And, you're, and you have to carry your authority in the right way. That's why I want you to talk about that thing you were talking about. But I think you should do it after this clip. You know, so how you carry that authority in pre-production matters. You know, you're, you're like a poker player. You have to always, even if you're scared out of your mind, you have to act like everything's great. I'm going to still yeah. pursue this. Yeah. You're, the, pursue difference what? Between, pursue the difference what? between you in pre-production. Well, I think I, I'm saying you have to be, you have to be, you know, as someone said to me, being creative, writing, or pre-production is a, is a state of alternately feeling inspired and adrift. And that's a grown-up skill. That's not a, comf that's not a comfortable place to be. That's an uncomfortable place to be. And that's when I feel like my mother was right when she said I should have been a doctor, you know, because it's just like this weird limbo, you know. It's, is, it, is the film even going to happen? Are the wheels going to come off? And you just have to keep driving forward like General Patton, like without a doubt in your mind. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be that guy from the Civil War, McClellan, who Lincoln couldn't, he couldn't get him to attack. And he finally had to go, I fire you, man. Yeah, right. And so, and so finally he was like, God, it was like I passed a great bowel movement when I fired that guy. Because then finally Grant and Sherman started to fight the war. They started to pros prosecute the war. But until then it was just, they just parked with the greatest army in the world. They just parked in Virginia. So you got to just keep going and everybody will follow you, even if you're scared out of your mind. There's a part of, uh, in particularly, that the unknown and the accident plays in all of what we do. Mm. You took a left here and suddenly you saw that house. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes I actually think if you're well-intended on what you're about, there will be accidents that will occur that will in fact make what you're doing better. That's absolutely true. You know, mountain climbers say that. You know, if you, if you prevaricate, if you're too ambivalent, that will not happen. If you're always trying to hedge your bets, that will not happen. But when you commit, you go, I'm going to climb the mountain this way. I may die, but I'm picking this way. Then all kinds of things will present themselves to you. Otherwise, God's like, no, nah, you didn't pick yet, so I'm not going to give you any stuff. I didn't. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. You've got to pick. It's too easy if you don't pick. You gotta, you gotta, so then you pick, and then all that other stuff shows up. Yes, that does show up. So I go to this intersection of scouting locations in the fighter. And I love this. That's a... That's a Industrial town from 1800. It's a weird town, Lowell, Massachusetts, where these and with these weird little triangle buildings and these amazing streets. So I pick this. I, I'm very drawn to big open graphic spaces, visually. So it's a big open graphic intersection. I love it, where five streets meet, with a flat iron building in the middle of it, and that becomes the opening shot. And when I look to my left, there's a street of all these identical houses like this on both sides of the street, for like two blocks, like this like row houses, like little houses. And I go, wouldn't that have a telescoping effect if you zipped back, if you took the governor off the golf cart, which we had to do. You have to take the governor off, but the governor keeps it from going too fast. And you take the governor off, and the guy, the Steadicam operator, backed up and sat on it, and then it just, he punched it. Wouldn't that have a great effect? And that, so that's a found thing. That's a found thing. And that launches you into that march into town, which we're not going to look at now. Let's go take a look at another yeah. clip. Later on in the event, Russell and Kagan continue their discussion of the director's craft after viewing another scene from American Hustle, which interweaves multiple characters' voiceovers and cross-cutting to introduce the complicated relationship between Christian Bell's and Amy Adams' characters. I want to talk about rehearsal because the performances are del delicious and deep. Um, so can you talk about how 
specifically you worked with these two actors or these in this particular case to discover help them discover who they were and so let's talk about this rehearsing process I, as I said, I talk to them a lot in pre-production when I can. So it's like we're already rehearsing because we're talking about the character. And they're telling me things. They're sharing things with me sometimes about themselves that will, I will put into the character. You know, they're either in the movie or not in the movie. You know, you know, Jack Nicholson says it's always good for a character to have a secret. So sometimes it's just a secret that the actor has. You know, so, you know, there's a lot of that. And then I rehearse with them one-on-one. -on -one, and there's a lot of that. And then I rehearse with them in two pair and there's a lot of talk about what their characters like and they're building the character with me and they build their wardrobe with me and I want them to participate in those selections I don't want them making any selection that they don't like or, or love and by that time they sort of started to become the character because they've started living in that in both cases, there, there's a voice that they have that is not their own voice. I'm not talking about when she decides to be Mrs. You know, Lady Greensleeves, but I mean, that's not, I think, Amy's voice, but certainly it's not his. What's the process of your saying, this is the right accent, if you will, looking at that? I mean, are, is, it, are you beforehand talking this through? Are you listening to other people? Because he's got, obviously, a specific rhythm, a specific tone of voice, speaking of, of Christian Bale and what you just did. He chose a voice. How, how do you participate in that process? Well, he's, he's you know, an artist, as is you know, so many of the actors in this film. who they, Christian had the real guy who he met. Mm -hmm. who is alive, very old, and he absorbs from that and he listens to other things and he goes to his Christian workshop and he comes back with his thing, you know, and then we talk about it, you know, and it shifts a little bit, you know. Um, in The Fighter, for example, you know, he was imitating Dickie Eklund, who was with us in the movie, but for the first two weeks we couldn't understand anything he was saying. But it was accurate to how Dickie spoke and Christian did not want to change it, you know, until two weeks in he said, oh, I think what you're trying to say is that if people don't understand what I'm saying, they might start to get bored. And I said, yes. Um, so then he understood why I wanted him to at least calibrate it so you could understand what he was saying. Um, but, and Amy, you know, Amy, we decided she was somebody who'd made up her own British accent, so it was okay if it was, it felt like an atmosphere, like a perfume was sprayed, and it wasn't meticulously accurate. It just was good enough to, to be sold with all of her amazing screen presence and her glamour in the picture and her confidence it's all about confidence so Amy tooled around some different accents and, and came up with that and they're both extremely intense all the actors in this picture very present intense actors Bradley Cooper worked on an accent that was a bit of a New York accent and uh, he's from Philly he's not far from New York Jennifer just talked like Jennifer she had a little she put a little bit of New York in there um and in, in, let's talk about a rehearsal with the, the two of them. Um, either that last part of the scene, which we saw with Jennifer and him, that particular scene, now that may have not been rehearsed, but I'm not sure which of these scenes you might have been able to rehearse before actually being on set. Uh, if they were, what you go through? Does the, do they improvise in a rehearsal? Are you, are you wanting them to be pretty much where your script is? Again, what's the process for you? Let me actually tell you how my day goes, okay? So I like to do the scene intimately with them. And I say to them, this is the movie. It's not out there. This is the movie right here. So we should feel it right here. And I start my day in the van with the crew. I like the whole crew to gather in a van. It's very important that it's an enclosed space because enclosed spaces are, are very powerful. All the power is in there. 
and your attention is not distracted. And I will go through the entire day with all the keys and sometimes the actors in the car. And um, you have some actors like Bradley Cooper who are very, are, you know, may become filmmakers themselves. So he's very collaborative and helpful in all of that and very smart. And sometimes actors want to be part of that and sometimes they don't. And I'll go through the whole day. I go, this is what's going to happen today. And I'll tell them what I want to do with each one of these things on the schedule. We'll talk that through. And then everybody feels like they have it from a human being, not have just a, not just a piece this? of paper. No, I'd say it really evolved on the fighter in the last, you know. And then everybody feels like they have their mission. They heard it from me and we're united. They're not off doing their department's work that's broken off from me. You know, they all feel connected to the same heart. You know, that is the heart of the story we're trying to tell. We're all in it together. That's a good feeling. Let's go to casting for a second. Okay. The kid. You pick cast twins so you can work more hours, right? Always get twins or triplets because then otherwise, you know, you're rushing for this kid who's like a day player. You know what I mean? You're like rushing. Like you have the two biggest movie stars in the world on your set and you're like rushing to get the six hours out of the kid. So it's good to have twins. Um, and it's good to have kids who are, you know, really good at it. You know, and, this, and we have, we all, we all try them out. The actors and me try them out together and you know, this kid's good. You know, so I bring the actors into the, Christian and Jennifer became part of that. But in the casting process. Yeah. I, I said to them, how does this seem to you? And, you know. Because some kids, as we know, well know, just like you were talking about, are, are so over-rehearsed, that's all they'll do, and that's all you get. And this kid feels extremely, or this right. kid and his brother, right. feel extremely natural in terms of what was going on. Did you, did either you or Christian feed them lines that was unexpected, so they were then very present, or was this, they were doing the lines that they learned? Um, we go over the scene a lot with them, and then Christian, or whatever actor's working with them, and helps them get through the scene. They, they, the actor kind of takes a paternal view of the, hopefully, of the child actor and then is paternalistically helping the kid through the scene. You know, so it's kind of fun for the kid. And like a nice parent, he's going, like trying to cue him and, you know. It's always fun when actors are helping the person that, that's off of them. I like that. Like in, like in Silver Lining's playbook, uh, when John Ortiz puts his hand on his face and he says he's suffocating and he goes like this, John kept forgetting to do that. So... Bradley being, you know, a generous guy, you can see Bradley one take, they reach that point in the scene and John does and you see Bradley go like this. But you're on Bradley's back. So we had to paint out his hand because you could, otherwise you see his hand. So we painted out this other way Bradley was going this. And so and then John went like that. The, the, in casting all those, uh, here's $5,000. Uh, they're, they're an incredible variety of people. Where did they come from? I'm talking about all the ones that are making the bargaining. They're, they have the one line here, you know. Oh, those to, guys, yeah. those guys, yeah. Some of them are people I know who I just think, like Arthur Birnbaum, who's the father of, he's a former criminal judge from the Bronx, who's, you know, I have car dealerships all over Long Island. You know, he's such an authentic person. I could listen to him all day. You know, I love listening to people like that talk. I love the musicality of how people talk. And I love people like that who have accents. And I was ashamed of my mother's Brooklyn accent my whole life until I grew up and realized it was awesome. Because um, I grew up in a suburb where they tried to knock the edges off of everything. Although I expect you wrote that line about the mother who you thought you were interested. Oh, yes. No, that's a good line. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she was the Picasso of passive aggressive karate. And also, I thought you were mysterious like my mother <laughs> I found out mysterious just means depressed. You were like my mother. Yeah, that's 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 where the, the muses are speaking to you. Tell your truth right now. <laughs> this is your chance. So yeah. So that's like that goes into the character of Rosalind. I, I have a personal feeling for those characters and for that predicament he's in. Right? He's a married guy. Many people have been married. People who've been in a predicament or have known married people are in a predicament. And what's cool about this braid is you go into their backstory. 
you've just seen them in this hotel, this terrible predicament. Suddenly he's telling you where he came from. Then he tells you how he fell in love with Amy. And you completely fall in love with them, with the music. And then all of a sudden, he goes to this house. And you're like, wait, what's happening? Where's he going? And she goes, he was married. You go, oh, Jesus Christ, he's married to Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, my God. So I what? just fell in love with him and Amy Adams. What's going to happen? So then, then you see the bind he's in. And you establish that he's in a bind. And, she's, and Amy sympathizes with the bind. The woman had him by the short hairs. And she knew he had the kid. And she was going to make him twist about the kid. And then you come back to them selling their deals to people. You, have to be like, you just have to always be thinking about how is this a surprising scene? How am I telling the story in a way that is surprising to people? You know, that they don't, that I suck them into one thing, like I suck them into the romance between Amy and Christian just to flip it over in two seconds and, and defy them and say, no, he's actually married to this woman. And it's actually a, a, a bigger jam than you'd expect. That group of, uh, when we go to the house, that it's, I guess it's snowing outside or it's snow outside, it's the big party where they meet. And I don't, know, I don't know, there are 50, 60 people in that room. And they're Those are my least favorite days of shooting. How come? Because there's all these strangers on the set. You know what I mean? There's like 60 strangers on your set. And there's all this chaos and noise. And it's really hard to hold everybody's attention, to, to focus your attention, to keep the magic. The magic's right here, right? It's right here in this moment. And that just gets dissipated all over the place if you don't... You have to keep rehuddling the energy, you know, or it just gets blown out the window and a day goes by and you didn't get it. You know, so if you're doing it on a schedule, you have to get it by, you know, those days always feel to me like we didn't get it. The, with scenes with lots of people, the parking lot scene in the Silver Lines playbook when he goes to the Eagles game, my most miserable day of my life as a director, like just like with hundreds of Eagles fans in their trunks and I'm like, it's, everything feels like just chaos. And I'm like, I don't know. I, th I hope we got the scene. I have no idea. You just keep shooting it, but it just feels like you have a migraine, the whole thing. And I'm like, I think we got it. Because so much is happening. There's so much energy. There's so much human energy there. It's much better when you're in a room with two people. You can just, the, the human energy is very concentrated. But it's just like it's divided by 100 people. On a, on a, on a, on a do you talk to that 100 people? Do you remember? I make the mistake of doing that. I, yeah, I do. I talk to them. I, yes, and then I lose even more of my energy. And then I just kind of pass out. I just kind of lie down. I'm just like, I don't, I'm just, oh, I, I'm just, yeah. Well, oftentimes you're turning to. Uh, yeah, Shelly, Shelly Ziegler, the best AD. I mean, she's say. a magnificent AD. My, my AD crew is from Baltimore. And uh, Baltimore is as real as it gets. You know, Baltimore is, uh, uh, has very certain beers and cookies and ways of living. And, uh, and that's, you know, and uh, John Waters. And, uh, you know, and sh they're just real people and they're wonderful. They're very hard. Uh, Zan, Xanthus Valen, the second AD. And they, they know how to, you know, we have a scorecard. We try to get more yardage than we can get. And Shelly's my partner all day in handicapping that. She's saying, this is your chance to steal that thing that you wanted to steal. I give her my whole basket of things I want to steal. Like in The Fighter, I, want, I do those interviews that open and close the movie where you interview them in character. The producer said we had no time for that. So I was going to do it anyway. So it's like we're sneaking. You know, we're cheating. You know, we're cheating. So, so Shelly's like, this is a good time to do an interview. And I turn to Mark and Christian. I say, will you do this interview right now at 2 o'clock in the morning when you've wrapped for the day? And they sit down on the couch and they go, I'm going to ask you questions in character. That stays in the editing room for nine months untouched. Until nine months in, we discover, oh my God, let's look at those interviews. Because we already had a good opening to the movie with the rake and the street. We go, no, this is a great opening. And it's a very great closing. You know, anyway, so those are gifts that Shelley helps us find and fight for. Editing. 
let's jump there for a minute. Jay Cassidy, Alan Baumgarten, our editors, our assistant editors. I will deputize an assistant editor. I like to cut in two or three rooms and divvy up the scenes and walk from one room to another and then pass the scenes around again. And so that's what I like to do. So I'll deputize an assistant editor and sometimes they choke and I'll say, I'm going to cut you. You know, and then they'll say, okay, then they'll then they'll step it up because you know somebody they get thrown the ball. They get sometimes some people can't, aren't ready for it. I assume it's digital. Yes. Looking at this, which is a complex piece of editing, this braided the piece that we just saw, um, knowing, for example, that the smash of that gr glass window is going to bring us into the kid, uh, him as a young man. That's an editorial choice as well as... No, that was written that way. Oh, exactly. And, but it's, I was and then I said exactly what the effect was, and that became a second unit thing. So I kept saying to Mark Kamein, I think, who might have shot it, our UPM, I said, Mark, it has to be like, you know, really great. You have to find the right glass that shatters the right way, so you have to watch all the tests. You know, that, that looks really bad. That doesn't look right. The one that's going to go like that, or all the glass is going to come like that. And then I, he, he promised me he got it that way. As you as as you're in the editing room, in particular the three editing rooms, what's your process? Are you going from shot to shot? Are you saying, "Give me this sequence and then let me examine it"? And particularly when something like this, where you've got voiceovers, it's going to weave into the actual things that are getting spoken. I mean, are there many many drafts of the edited before you're saying, "Okay"? Oh, no, no, no. I go into the editing room usually the day after we wrap principal photography. I don't like to take a break. I like to go right in. And I like to start cutting a sequence the way I remembered it, the way I wanted it to be. And very often the editor has a version that he's cut, but I, I don't want to see that. And sometimes he makes me see it, and sometimes there's great things in that. And I go, that's great. And sometimes I end up backing into the dailies and discovering treasures. Do you do any uh, pre-visualizations with a you know a, I don't know a small digital camera as you're going on locations? And we do you don't cut do any of that we don't stuff? do playback by the way. We do not do playback on our sets. That's what and where are you? I'm gonna. Where are you when you're actually shooting? I'm, with, I'm never. I'm not with the camera. I'm next to the camera. And so where's Video Village? Back there somewhere. Do you play music on the set? Yes. And how? Well, sometimes I'll play music. Sometimes just to shake up the mood. A beautiful song in between setups. So a great, unrelated. Sometimes, no, a great piece of music that is related to everything, but it has to be an inspiring, great piece of music that's related to them. And then I will play music that is in the scene as they walk the scene, so they have a feeling of rhythm. Rhythm is everything. And Dustin Hoffman taught me that that is a legitimate fashion of direction, given what is called a line reading or indication. My actors will sometimes say to me, please give me a line reading, because they want to hear the rhythm of how I'm hearing it. I thought it was verboten you know, not to do that, but rhythm is character. If how I talk tells you something about me, and you can get to the heart of a character from the inside, from what my emotional story is at that moment, or from the outside, from how I dress and how I carry myself and how I talk. And if I talk like this, it changes who I am as a person. So they can get to character just as easily through rhythm as they can. You know, so... When, when Bradley Cooper was running through town in Silver Lines Playbook, I told him a rhythm that was in his head, which told him what his energy was. I was like, tick, 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 tick. it's not, it made him feel that he had this, because his character was burning with this manic desire to put his life back together and to find his ex-wife. And so that's in his eyes. Tick, tick, 
he's not just running. Very often when you run, you have a rhythm in your head. So I gave him a rhythm in his head. Were you, if you're back in the editing room now and looking even at this, this, this sequence of braided stories that we're talking about, will you find yourself reworking? You obviously just said from the fighter you took, took something that you'd almost forgotten and it ended up being an essential moment in the, in the movie. Will you find yourself re, redoing a scene, playing it from another character's point of view because you've got great performances so you could be on one or the other and particularly if you've covered them? Um, or are you pretty much, I know where I was intending and I'm heading toward that space? Well, I like to tell the movie from every character's point of view for them and for me because I always learn something when I make myself tell the whole movie from their point, as if it's their movie. And then the editor, Jay Cassidy and Alan Baumgarten, they're incredible. You know, so we are tireless in our process and Bradley Cooper's often in there with us. And I will welcome anybody into the editing room at the right time to take any note at certain time. But certain people are just collaborators, and those people are all collaborators. And we retry it many different ways, and we learn many different things. Um, and we have bake-offs. You know, I call it a bake-off. You know, I go, let's bake it off, you know. Because sometimes we have fans of one version and fans of another version. And sometimes we switch positions. And I'll say, Jay, I'm arguing for your version. He'll say, yeah, but I don't agree with that version anymore. <laughs> so that that's a healthy process you know i mean where it's not precious and you're not afraid to change it you know when will you settle when you say i've got it no you know you go back and forth and back and forth and you never stop discovering it my whole thing is i keep unlocking the picture even i keep which is you know that feels like a great gift when things are limited is when they're special right like when you can't get into a theater to see a movie it's special when it's available everywhere it's not so special so life is special when it's doled out that way so when the time is doled out Special ideas come. So the time is doled out. They go, you have to lock. So deadlines are our friend. We race for every deadline and we use it to elevate. And then every preview, elevate, elevate. And then lock picture. And then I go, Jay, we have to unlock the picture. Please, Mr. Studio Boss, can we unlock the picture? Because it's essential that I add two beats. And a beat is 16 frames. 16 frames is a beat. Jay Cassidy taught me that, not 24 frames. And we'll say, give, I'll say, Jay, give us 16 frames. Two beats, it's always two beats on someone's face, when not just to feel them. That makes all the difference in the scene, you know, rather than hurrying past them. So the scene's great, the scene's working, but that makes all the difference. We were talking once about your definition of cinema, and it has something to do with lots of variety of points of view. Can you articulate this i think it's it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of sumptuousness and a deliciousness you know that is visual you know and any in, in any film you kind of love it i can i can I, I can i like being able to tell people sequences from films i love and i could tell you sequences from those films i love you know uh whether it's i am cuba or whether it's you know goodfellas or whether it's it's a wonderful life or whether it's the 400 blows or you know i could tell you a sequence from it and with the shots you know I don't know why. It's very comforting to me. It's like a song. Like if I was ever, you know, you know, if I was ever stuck in traffic or something, you know, that's a fun way to occupy your mind. It makes you happy. You know, if you sing, it makes you happy. If you go over a scene from a movie, if you tell somebody a scene from a movie, it makes you happy. If you tell them that scene. I, I think that when you make a movie, it's the opportunity for you to see life like through a child's eye or like new for the first time, it somehow becomes magical and different. It's that, and if you feel the love and connection to that, then you're making a movie because that's a special thing. You're showing somebody 
a vision of life. So that's how it should feel. Every shot, you should try to imagine feeling it that way. Like if your kid telling your parents something that happened and you're feeling every single bit of it. So yeah. it's also then discovery. I mean, you're using the camera to reveal, to yeah. discover, as distinguished from here it is in front of you, here it is over here. You, it, seems in, it seems both of those shots are, are reveal shots in a way. And I'm very, this is an important, this is another braiding piece, like the thing that we did in American Hustle, where you go into the backstory. So we had to very economically tell the story of who was this guy? What, what are we walking into? We're walking into a situation where this guy used to be a champion, and, but now he's older and he's a crackhead, but the mother still worships him. So how do you tell all that story without stopping the movie? You know? So you design a scene where she comes into the gym and she's bragging on the older crackhead in front of the younger kid, which was what happened. And then you go into, we reshot exactly the way it looked, that HBO sequence with that, I think that guy's name was Ray Carney or something with the plaid jacket. And then you go, I, I like the cross-cutting of the fight with him fantasizing about the fight while he's smoking crack. You know, he's fantasizing about it. Um, I thought Pam Martin edited that perfectly. I know we aren't seeing all the, 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 the daughters, but can you talk a little bit about them? Those of us who know the movie, they are, they are this, this, this phalanx of power, and I'm curious how you created them. I spent a lot of time casting them, and they were. I told them to be a pack and encouraged them to be a gang because that was the trick of the movie to me. I could tell whenever I'd watch the movie be screened that people were digging the movie, up in, but when the penny really drops for the audience is in the scene when Mark and Amy Adams face off against the seven sisters and Christian. And you can feel people go, oh, it's a family feud. You know, oh, it's like a, it's like a fight of clans inside a family. And they get all excited. You know, it's like watching people on Jerry Springer or something. <laughs> so you can feel the excitement in the theaters whenever that would happen. And that we knew that that was something delicious. You know, and I knew that those sisters had had physical fights with the Amy character. And so I was sure to put one in. Um, that I was especially looking forward to. You know, that I thought it was, I knew it was to be a very exciting scene. What do you do with the physicality here? How do you prepare for the stunts? In that case, in that case, I happened to run into Amy Adams at a Whole Foods at like ten o'clock the night before we were shooting it in Andover, Massachusetts, and it was empty. And she and I were like the only two people in the supermarket. And I showed her how I wanted her to do the fight in the empty aisle of the supermarket at ten o'clock, and we kind of acted it out that night. Other things like how she goes to bed with Mark Wahlberg in the movie. It's a very seductive sequence. Mark and some actors feel like they, they, it makes some actors more comfortable if you tell them exactly how you want them to do it. So it takes it off of them because they don't want to have it up to them to do something sexual. They don't want to be perceived as doing something inappropriate. So I made sure to choreograph, you know, with, you know, my partner what I wanted them to do. The day, exactly what I wanted them to do the day before. And then that's what I told them to do. And I acted it out for them. You have to be, I'm willing to embarrass myself as a director, which takes the stigma away from it. Like Mark Wahlberg in the Three Kings wouldn't dance until he, I danced in front of the whole crew. So I danced in front of the whole crew. And he, I wouldn't cry until I cried in front of the whole crew. So then I cried in front of the whole crew. And that freed him. You so li so likewise with the sex thing, you know, if you do it, you kind of act it out, then you take, you, you, people can laugh. You know, and so then it takes it. It makes it takes some of the stigma off of it. Um, if you reflect on your role as a director now, 
and consider what you've learned. What are some of the things you that are, that that are different for you now from the time when you were starting out doing spanking? What what's different besides your own maturity and your own growth? But as a director, I don't know. Probably the most important thing is feeling like you know what you want. Mm-hmm. You know what you want. And you want to go deep with the character, as deep as you can. And find, being sure you find the way to do that. And being sure you're going to find the music and the beauty in whatever scene you're shooting. To feel, to feel very relentless about fi- searching for that. Because if you relax about it, you won't find it. So knowing that you have to be always very vigilant about that. But also knowing what it is you want. What feeling you want. Um, I would say that's probably the most important thing. And having a sense of confidence on the set that that other people then can put themselves in your hands so because you have a confidence even if you're not sure of things you still have a confidence about it and you know what you want from your heart and sharing your heart with them so they get get can put their hearts into it so i would say that's well and i've also learned that i love a cinema about people you know, when you look at Three Kings, I mean, I like it, but I would not make it today because I don't. I'd rather be in a house with people. I'd rather be around people walking down streets and stuff. Um, and I learned that about myself. You know, that I, I I like that. You know, I prefer that. Well, I want to say on behalf of all of us, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for spending this time with us. I've got a whole bunch of notes I have to write down so I know how to <laughs> apply what I've just learned. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special discussion. You can watch the full video of The Craft of the Director with David O. Russell and many other director Q&As on our website and our YouTube channel. And if you have not already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.